17, uh, we find ourselves uh, with Paul uh, in Ephesus. So let me read. And he, being Paul, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of those itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Matt. So as has been said already, we're in Missions Month. We're picking up again in the book of Acts. And we've, we've been going through the book of Acts in Mission Month, August for, I don't know, the last eight or ten years or so. And as we have, we've seen this wonderful sort of spread of Christianity after Jesus died and risen from the grave. His followers, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, have been sharing this good news that sin and death have been conquered, beginning in Jerusalem, going to Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And I hope uh, again this year, as we look at this book of Acts, our hearts will be stirred and encouraged as we see the, the gospel going forth in the first century. But isn't the opposite happening in the 21st century? Rather than Christianity sort of advancing and expanding, isn't it in decline? The census data was just released for Australia recently and that uh, religion question uh, again, the, the answer was down. Uh, there's just over 40% of Australians uh, say that they are Christians. That's down from the previous census, which was just over 50%, and the one before that, just 10 years ago, which was over 60%. At that rate of decline, in just 20 years, it'll be you and me and just a handful of others that are professing to be Christians in Australia. How can we consider the gospel going to the ends of the earth when in our country, in our city, in our community, 
it seems like the opposite is happening. Now, if you're here and you're, you're not a believer, maybe you're thinking, wow, I've just arrived sort of after the, the dot-com boom and we're in the bust or, or something like that. Why would I be sort of investigating Christianity if it's, if it's on the decline? Am I, are we all on the wrong side of history here? But I'm, it's my hope for you and actually for all of us that we'll actually be really encouraged by what we see in the book of Acts today. Because we're the, the couple of chapters that we're, we're looking in in Acts over these coming weeks is set, as Matt said, in, in the city of Ephesus. And that city and centre has a lot in common with us and our lives today. So in some ways, you know, obviously first century lives very, very different to, to ours today. But many of their heart challenges are things like loving self and money and pleasure are the same challenges that we face today and i think we'll hopefully see as the gospel comes and as christianity comes that um it it has this clash with the culture and and we'll see how christianity um, just powerfully and wonderfully goes forth Uh, so the outline for what we're going to look at today should be up on the screen it's a bit of a complicated one let me read out for us how will a therapeutic consumeristic hedonistic culture respond when christianity comes Right, so I'm going to make a, a little bit of a case that Ephesus, like us, is a therapeutic, hedonistic, um, consumeristic culture. <laughs> um, but, but when that happens, when Christianity comes into such a culture, will the culture change Christianity or will Christianity change the culture? That's what we're going to look at today. So, so let's start firstly by uh, trying to make a case for, for how Ephesus is actually a, a therapeutic a consumeristic, hedonistic culture. Now, Ephesus, there should be a picture of sort of where Ephesus is, go up. Um, it was in the province called Asia. That's different to Asia as we know it now. It's more sort of modern-day Turkey. Uh, and it's a very prosperous sort of, is the regional centre of, of the area. It was cosmopolitan, so it's multicultural and sort of a, a melting pot, a pot of different trades and ethnicities came there. There was a lot of wealth there. I actually had the opportunity to go to Ephesus and visit about 10 years ago. It's just a a ruin now, uh, but there's been a lot of sort of archaeological work done there and sort of rebuilding of the the old structures. While I was there, uh, they were rebuilding the the old library, which is an incredibly impressive building. Uh, But they had just actually uncovered in the library that there were these secret passages out of the library. And the the thought was uh, that, that the men would go to the library... Um, but the secret passages actually led to brothels. Okay, so um, there's, it's just I- interesting, um, highly sexualized, prosperous, co- cosmopolitan setting. And we actually, from the Bible, know a lot about Ephesus. So we both have Paul in Ephesus for a few chapters in Acts. We have the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, but you, you might know that Paul actually left Timothy in Ephesus. So the, the letters to Timothy also are sort of addressing what's going in the, the city of Ephesus. And you see up on the slide, and hopefully you can see the bits that are bolded and underlined, this would describe some of the things that the Ephesians were into. And this is where I get that those things from before. They are lovers of self. Um, I, I think we can, can relate to that. That's where I get the idea of the th- therapeutic culture. It's all about me, what's best for me, my desires, what I want. They were lovers of money. Uh, they're consumeristic. Uh, we see that sort of greed and, and desire for money and wealth in our own culture. And they are lovers of pleasure. 
that hedonistic lifestyle, that whatever brings me pleasure, I'm going to pursue. Uh, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, then I, I can, I'm free to pursue and, and do the things that, that I want. I want to say on, on one hand, um, pleasure and even money and, and self, they aren't necessarily bad things. Uh, but the Bible consistently would say when you put one of those as, as top and, and first in your life uh, then it, and above God, then it is not good. And for the Ephesians, it would seem that money in particular was a real idol, something their hearts were drawn to. Uh, the next verse is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy. He says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There's a great warning there for a love of money, um, people walking away from the faith, and also that the love of money actually causes them harm. Okay, now, I want to make the, the case, or, or put to you, that actually this love of money, this love of pleasure, this love of self, has a lot in common with our modern culture. And so let's look now at what happens when Christianity comes into the culture of Ephesus. Uh, look with me at verse 8. If you've got Bibles there, have them open to that passage in, in chapter 19. Uh, we, we read in there, uh, it says, He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So Paul's practice, this is very familiar to us as we've been through Acts. He'll go first to the synagogue. That's where the Jewish people would gather to hear and consider about God. So he's gone there and he's proclaiming Jesus there, the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, all the messages that we might know from the Bible, that, that Jesus is the one promised from the Old Testament, the one who has come to, to live the righteous life, who has laid down his life for the sake of those who's loved. And he's taken it up again and showing power and being resurrected from the dead. Uh, Paul's proclaiming here that, that Jesus has defeated evil and death and has been victorious. And he does that for three months. But then in verse 9 it says, But when some become stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And so what's happened is he, he, he goes out of the synagogue just to the Jews and he now in the hall of Tyrannus, he's sort of opening it up and proclaiming this message to, to all who might be in Ephesus and, and Asia. And then in verse 10, we see this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so, so Paul's doing this every day, proclaiming Jesus and, and all of Asia Hears this now. It's probably not they've all come to hear him directly, but this message, as those who've heard and taken it back to the towns and regions, has spread to all of Asia. And what follows then are some incredible miracles. Now, before we look at them, I just want to um, just talk briefly about what we see of miracles in the Bible, because we we do see miracles uh, a bit in the Bible, but. As we do, we'll see that the, the miracles are always used by God to support and uphold the message that is being proclaimed. So when Jesus came and he healed the paralytic, that, that, 
that was to show that Jesus even had power to forgive sins. When Jesus heals the, the blind and the, the deaf, it is to show that, that he is the one that we should listen to and should see as, as God coming. When he feeds the 5,000, it's, it's to show that he is God who provides for the needs of his people. But the, the miracles substantiate the, the claims of who Jesus is and the message that he proclaims. And we see the same in Acts as the, as the message of Christianity goes into new areas, um, often associated with miracles, to sort of substantiate the claims that have, have been taught. Those that were here last week and saw the mission movie, I just thought it was amazing when um, the, the missionaries in Papua New Guinea had learnt the language and they were teaching the people uh, the story of the Bible. Uh, when it got up to the, the part of Jesus and this massive storm was coming, uh, just seemingly miraculously, the, the storm sort of parted around them and the people were able to listen to, to the gospel proclaimed. Okay, we see um, God working um, to so that his message would be proclaimed. So the, the miracles we see there in, in verse 11, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of him. There's a couple of things for us to notice here. First, and this is really important, these miracles might be done at the hand of Paul, but it's God who is doing them. Okay, that's, that's really clear in our text. In fact, it's even clearer when you realise um, about the handkerchiefs and the aprons. Now, we think of handkerchiefs and we think of sort of a, you know, a gentleman that's got a handkerchief in his suit and he's ready to you know, wipe away tears of, of some maiden or, or something like that. Now, this, this handkerchief that we're talking about, Paul, we find out in chapter 20, he worked every day. So he's preaching in the middle of the day, but he's working, making tents every day. Now, Ephesus, I'm telling you, it is hot and sweaty there. The handkerchief's tied around to, to collect the sweat. The apron was as part of his work. These are sort of dirty, grotty things. In and of themselves, like the stench is more likely to drive out the evil spirits than... And it, it's, it's clearly these things in themselves aren't what's powerful. It's, it's God working them. Okay, the, the text makes that really clear. But the other thing for us to notice is, and the Bible's even describing this, these are described as extraordinary miracles. Okay, they're, they're extraordinary. They're not the sort of thing that we would actually expect to see every day. Uh, there's, there's something extraordinary going on uh, to substantiate the, the message that Paul is preaching here about Jesus. So we shouldn't, uh, in some senses, expect miracles like this to be happening regularly. But at the same time, we shouldn't not expect God by his spirit to, to be at work. Right? Clearly, he has power over evil and over sickness here. And, and we want to pray and trust that he would show the same power in our time. I, you guys know that one of my daughters has a chronic health condition at the moment. I pray daily that God would heal her. And we're seeing wonderful answers to those prayers. So Christianity has come to Ephesus. It's been proclaimed and it's been shown to have power over evil. But the question is, will the people turn from their evil practices? Or will the people see the power that sort of Paul is wielding and, and try and use the, the name of Jesus 
Will they, in a sense, see, see the, the power and, and want one of those handkerchiefs for themselves? So this brings us to will the culture change Christianity? Okay, so this is the next point on our outline. Will the uh, culture change Christianity? Now, when you hear me say that, uh, you, you may well think, oh, hang on a sec. Culture can't change Christianity. Uh, and that's true. The, the message of, of Christianity can't be sort of changed uh, by the culture. But sadly, the history of the church is littered with tragic and terrible examples of where Christianity has been deliberately changed or manipulated by our culture. Okay, so some examples are slavery or chauvinism. There's no way in the Bible are these things in any way supported. In, in fact, quite the opposite. Yet at a point in history where the, the culture in a, a certain place um, said these things were good and right, um, the Bible was used to try and support and substantiate those things. Uh, this uh, approach to Christianity is what I'd call a, a culture first. It's taking the things of the culture and then just sort of adding a little bit of Christianity to it or adding a little bit of Jesus. It's, it's not really Christianity at all. Let me try and show you in the text of, of how that happens here in Ephesus. See, some people, they obviously see what Paul's doing and they probably think to themselves, hey, Paul, he, he is crazy not to be charging money. I mean, he, and they, so they decide to mimic him in order to, to make a mozza for themselves. You can read it with me there um, from, from verse 13, what happens. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Right, so they're, they're trying to use the name of Jesus for their own means here. Uh, it's interesting. It says they're itinerant um, exorcists. So... They, uh, it, it would seem that sort of what they did was to go around different different regions and sort of you know to try and do these different miracles or healings or, or whatnot. Um, presumably, it was quite lucrative. These particular ones, it says in verse fourteen, the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. Uh, <laughs> they're frauds. The reason we know that is because we have records of the the Jewish high priests, and there's no Jewish high priest called Skeva. The clues are sort of there for, for us in our text. Um, but they're, they've probably got some association with the, the Jewish high priest, but they're, they're using this uh, to, to try to, to defraud people, uh, to get their money. And, and they've obviously seen that Paul's got, sort of got this power and they think, okay, we're going to be able to use this power and proclaim the name of, or use the name of Jesus and, and it's all going to work out well for us. Well, what happens? Verse 15, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Now, of course, the evil spirit knows Jesus. We see in the Gospels when evil spirits come face to face with Jesus, they scream in terror. It happens every time. Read those stories. They scream in terror because he is so holy and powerful that they are terrified of him because they are fully evil. Um, they they recognise Paul, but these these frauds they say, who are you? 
Now, what's the difference between these sons of Sceva and Paul? Well, for Paul, the name of Jesus is to be magnified. And for, for Paul, he is proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is and his love um, for people. He proclaims how Jesus has given us what we need and how he has laid down his life to bring us to God. Now, these sons of Sceva, they're doing quite the opposite. They're not magnifying the name of Jesus. They're manipulating it. Right? They're, they're trying to, uh, working off their own greed and their own motives, are uh, trying to manipulate the name of Jesus to get what they want. Now, we'd never do that. You or I, we'd, we'd never manipulate Jesus to try and get what we want. Are you sure? Many of us, I think, functionally can often take a culture-first approach to Christianity. We say, oh, Jesus, I'll, I'll follow you, but I'm trusting that you'll give me all the things that I want. I would do what you say, but, but you've got to give me the, the life that I want. Now, the easiest way to know we're doing that is when it's something uh, that we do really want in life doesn't come our way, whether it be a, a relationship, whether it be a promotion, whether it be wealth or, 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 or what it might be. And, and I've seen it. People's lives can, can fall apart and their faith just erodes because really they're just wanting Jesus to give them what they wanted rather than going to Jesus and magnifying Jesus and know that Jesus actually gives us everything that we need. Now, I think there's a few ways that our culture more broadly does this. Now, it's, it's very hard, actually, when, when you're in a culture to really be able to, to sort of understand and, and evaluate it well. Uh, but I think if we were to stand back and evaluate our own culture, one of the clear things and similarities with Ephesus is our consumerism, is our greed, is our driven by money. In, in fact, I'd say, um, you know, we're far more aware of sort of maybe sexual sin or um, different things, but, but greed, uh, we're, we're not even aware of some of the time. And I think there's been some really dangerous, false teaching in the church that's really tapped into this in our culture. I just want to put a, a couple of quotes up, uh, which are sort of quotes that are considered to be sort of prosperity, what's called prosperity gospel. But this one here is Benny Hinn. And I've deliberately put their names so that you might be able to recognise some of these false preachers. God will begin to prosper you, for money always follows righteousness. Now, righteousness is good. <laughs> we want that. Um, but but it, is not, it is not proclaiming Jesus to say, well, if you're going to be good and, and righteous and, and be wonderfully transformed, that, that, that that's going to lead to money and prosperity. Right, here's, a, here's another one. That's Joel Osteen. 
God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. Now, sure, God is going to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. He has good works in advance for, for us to do. But there's, there's no promise that he is gonna, we're going to prosper financially. Right? Do you see the evil at the heart of these? It's tapping into to the motivation of greed. I'll just show a third one. Um, it's Kenneth Copeland. So the surest way to receive anything from God is to take his word, believe it in your heart, and say it with your mouth. And now, in a sense, it's like we do want to believe it in our heart and say it with our mouth. But you see the motivation there, the subtle motivation is to receive from God, right? And, and, and the, the motivation is, is sort of a, a greed or a self-interest there. I, I put those up there because we in our culture are very much in danger of doing the same thing of, of what the Ephesians did here, which is taking our own culture, sort of what we want, the desires of our heart, and sort of adding a sprinkle of Christianity to it. But there's a warning in this passage that this culture-first approach to Christianity, it doesn't overcome evil, it's not good, indeed the opposite. In verse 16, we see what happens. The man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They're beaten, they're naked, they're humiliated. Uh, they're actually uh, overpowered by the very evil that they were, were trying, to, um, trying to overcome. This culture first, with adding a bit of Jesus, ended in disaster. Now, I want to share a, an illustration with you, which, which I hope will not only show how we are so quick to take something good and use it for evil means, but also show you how something good, in this case, particularly the name of Jesus, can and should be used uh, for good means. Uh, I would say, and you feel free to disagree with me about this afterwards, because I'm definitely no expert, but I would say possibly the greatest invention in the 20th century was the being able to manufacture ammonium. Okay, so those that, that don't know, ammonium is sort of a, used in, in fertilizers, and it can double, even triple the output of crops. Now, it, it was first the manufacturer, the sort of that process was first discovered in, in 1909, and a first factory to produce this was built in 1913. And at the time, there were predictions that this would end world hunger. Now, if you know your history, the very next year, World War I broke out, and exclusively, that ammonium that was produced was used for the production of weapons and warfare, and even, even chemical weapons in, in World War I. Something that had so much potential for good and something that could have been so wonderful was actually used for devastation and destruction. Uh, there is devastation and destruction when we take a culture-first approach to Christianity. We need to be so aware of that and mindful of that and turn and flee from that and speak out against that. But just like ammonium can be used for destruction, when it is used rightly and properly, uh, can be wonderful. And clearly here, when the, the name of Jesus is magnified, 
uh, when Christianity comes to a culture, it can change and advance. See, this incident had a huge impact on the people of Ephesus. Their reaction shows, shows us that when Christianity comes to a culture, Christianity can reach the world. When Christianity changes a culture, Christianity reaches the world. Uh, in verse 17, we'll pick up there. Uh, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolted. So the first reaction was fear. Now, that's interesting. Are they fearful of sort of what's happened to the sons of Sceva? Well, in a sense, maybe. But they've actually seen the absolute su superiority of the power of Jesus here. Jesus the, is, is first able to, to heal and exercise evil spirits, um, but even has such power that when, when tried to use in the wrong way, um, is clearly um, overcomes evil. This leads to them not trying to manipulate Jesus anymore, the name of Jesus, but magnifying his name. You see there in the passage that, that his name was extolled. And it leads in, in verse 18 to confession. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So it's possible the way it's worded there that these were already Christians, might have been even converted through this incident. Uh, but they're actually confessing and divulging their sins. That word divulging is really important for us because often I think what we can do with our sins is we can say, oh, I've sinned, I'm a sinner, God, please forgive me. And we know God will forgive us. Yeah, we are forgiven for our sins as we trust um, in him. But it's actually really important and helpful to divulge our sins, to actually name them for what they are. Not so that we would feel shame or guilt, but actually so that the gospel would work into them and that we would be changed and transformed. When do you do, you do that sometimes? Just sort of generally sort of say sorry for your sins. I'd encourage you to get into the, the habit of actually divulging um, to yourself and maybe into others the specific sins so that they can specifically be worked through so that God might change and work in you uh, through them. They didn't only confess and divulge, but they actually turned from their sins. See in verse 19, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. What I love about this is that not only have they turned from their sins, but they've sort of like burnt the bridges back to their sin. Okay, and burning the books, they, they can't return to them. I remember, it uh, must have been over a decade ago now, David Cunningham, who was the planting pastor of, of our church, he, he shared in a sermon how, how that very week uh, he had been just tempted and overcome by lust. And, and he actually had taken the computer that he had, had used, and he, I think he described how he took a baseball bat or something to it, and he threw it in the bin. Right? Now you might think, well, that's, that's sort of going over the top. But what I love about that is that is just not leaving any way back to the sin. How often do we do that? And it's not only sort of burnt bridges, but, but this is very costly to them. In verse 19, it, it said they counted the value of them uh, and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
So these magical books and, and whatnot, they had a lot of value. They were able to make a lot of money for the, the people that would, would use them. Uh, the 50,000 pieces of silver, um, generally in, in those days, one of those pieces of silvers was worth a day's work. So 50,000 pieces is like over 100 years worth of work. Right? That's an incredible amount of money. We could look at that and go, that is so costly. That is so extravagant. That's extreme. But I would say that is so freeing. Right? As they watched those books burn, they watched an obstacle that was hindering their faith, that was causing them to sin. They watched that burn away. Is there something that is an obstacle to your faith that would be good to do the same to? Is there, is there something you're spending money on that's actually causing you to sin? Right, some, some examples to consider. Streaming services, uh, technology, gambling beauty products. Um, I'm not, not saying they can't use any of those things, but there are definitely times where all of those things can be used in a way that, that we might sin and be tempted to, to sin. You need to confess, to divulge, to name it what it is, to, to turn. You know, I honestly would prefer that you burnt the money that you spend on, on those sort of things that are an obstacle to your faith or, or in the way than, than actually spending the money on those things. Okay, but a, a better idea again uh, would be why not use that money and instead of using it to sort of invest into sin, uh, actually to invest into the kingdom. Uh, why not? You know, look at, at what you might be spending on some of those things, and if you're convicted right now, why not pledge that to the mission fund? Okay, whatever you might spend on those things, actually pledge that. One of the promises in Scripture that I, I love is that we're to, to lay up not treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. And, and we're told, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, so... <laughs> If your treasure is in things of, of this world and seeking first pleasure or self or um, money, uh, your heart's going to be drawn there. But if your treasure is in heaven on things of the kingdom, then God's going to draw your heart there. There's a really clear contrast in our passage between a culture-first approach to a Christ-first approach. The culture says, I'm greedy, I want money, so I'm actually going to use Jesus to try and get it in some way. A Christ-first approach says, I'm greedy, I'm a lover of money, so please, Jesus, will you change my heart? Will you have victory over the evil in my heart? You know, I would, I would really honestly love <laughs> for there to be a really extraordinary miracle in our midst. It'd be really cool if there was like some extravagant sort of healing or, 
or exorcism. Uh, that would just be a sort of really clear display of God's power and sovereignty over evil. But the real miracle in this passage, it's not the exorcism, it's not the healing. It's the hearts of these people being changed and being transformed. Do you see that? Do you see that the, the real miracle in, in this chapter is, is how God is clearly at work in the city of Ephesus changing and transforming people that they might turn to him and be forgiven. They might leave their sin, turn from it, those obstacles to their faith and passionately follow Jesus. That's the miracle that I long to see in us. Us being freed from, from the sins that entangle and passionately following and pursuing Jesus in our lives. And I think when, when and as that happens, that's when we see that sort of decline of Christianity in our culture. We will see that reverse because it is so incredibly powerful when we see God's work in his people. Um, and it's such a powerful message that can go forth. This, this passage ends with God's word prevailing. We'll end here as well. In verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of God, it changes us. And as it does, it has impact beyond us. I just want to remind us again of, of verse 10 of this passage, uh, which said that the, the word went to all the residents of, of Asia. Right? As, as God's word impacts lives and hearts, then it, then it goes. And it's my hope that this missions month, that God would do an incredible work in our hearts that might change us, but also stir us to be a part of going, to be a part of supporting, to be a part of holding the rope so that this wonderful news that Jesus has overcome death, that evil has been defeated, would go forth. I pray that it would change our community, our city, and our country. Would you pray with me to that end as well? Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing account of how you've worked so powerfully in, in Ephesus. And Father, we look forward in coming weeks to seeing more and more how you worked in that city all of those years ago. I want to pray that you would be at work in our hearts. Lord, I want to ask that, that any today that have, have been stirred, that there's, there's something that they know that is an obstacle to their faith, that they know that they are turning to, that are seeing as more valuable than you, um, or is, is something that they just are finding really hard to let go of. Lord, I, I pray that, that you would be merciful. Uh, that you would enable confession and divulging of that and, and even a way that that might be done away with. Uh, would your spirit be at work in our hearts, helping us to confess and turn and trust in your goodness and your righteousness. 
I pray, Lord, as you do, that you would transform our hearts and our lives and that would free us, uh, that we would not want to store up money for our own greed, but actually would want to use it for the sake of your kingdom, uh, that we would want to love and nurture and support others and that we would be a part of taking the good news of Jesus to the nations. And Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.